The following story was recorded live at the National Structured Settlement Trade Association 2022 Fall Conference. Welcome to Settle Smart, a podcast produced by the National Structured Settlements Trade Association and hosted by Executive Director Eric Vaughn. Our podcasts are an educational resource about structured settlements for people who have settled a personal injury lawsuit to help them understand their best options for financial security. This can include you or a loved one who was injured in an automobile accident, injured on the job, or suffered from any number of injuries. We are here to help. We believe your injury settlement is your money, so keep it safe. Now, here's your host, Eric Vaughn. It's so great to see you, Julie. We've been having a wonderful time this morning here in uh, California. And almost everybody I've asked about thinking about our program agenda and who's going to be on the program agenda, they all uh, ask if if the, the best of all three Robinsons will be with us. And I've assured them, <laughs> yes, the best of all three Robinsons will be with us. And I understand from talking to you a little bit, you have not just an important guest, but a person who, in my view, and what I've learned and heard, a survivor, a person who cares about not just herself and her family, but making her life as powerful and as positive as she possibly can. And I'm so excited to hear your session with Rachel. So Julie, take it away. Thank you, Eric. Yeah. Thanks so much for being here. As chairman of the education committee, uh, chairperson rather, we co-chair, I've got many volunteers helping. We threw around a lot of ideas as to whose story we could share today. And I selfishly immediately thought of Rachel. I think when you've been in this business for a little bit of time, for me, that's just over 10 years, I think, officially anyway, there's probably a handful of clients that really touched you and impacted your career. And I think that as we go through the session, you'll get a flavor for just how much Rachel impacted my career, and she probably had no idea at the time, because all we were doing was what was natural, and that was getting to know Rachel and trying to figure out how to help her. And so why don't we start off, Rachel, by introducing you, and hey, thank you so much for being willing to share your story with us. I think that, just so you know, a, a big important thing that we all feel in the audience is we don't know what it's like to walk in your shoes. So if at the end of our 40 or so minutes together, they have a sense of what it's like to walk this road on your side, we will have had a successful session. So Rachel, thanks for, for joining me today and agreeing to, to talk to us. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Maybe you could start off. Why don't you share with the audience a little bit about what brought you into our office uh, 10 years ago uh, yes. and, and your growing up story a little bit? Sure. Yeah. I uh, Thanks, Julie. I can't remember if I was 19 or 20 when I walked into your office, maybe 20, but I uh, the process began when I was 19. I grew up an only child of a single father in the Seattle area. And then... In 2011, I was 19, and he was diagnosed with uh, stage four mesothelioma, which is cancer from asbestos. Most people have seen the commercials. And that was a serious and relatively short illness. He was diagnosed in February, and by November, he had passed away. And that was difficult for obvious reasons. And then after November, difficult for reasons I hadn't anticipated. 
uh, <laughs> which is that uh, when somebody dies, there's a surprising amount of paperwork. And so I met you, yeah, it must have been 20. It must have been the following year because even though his illness was so short, he had opened one of these wrongful death mesothelioma suits with a firm in Seattle and done a bunch of the legwork of getting that set up. But that settlement wasn't decided until the following year. So I think it was through the law firm that I was introduced to yeah. you. It's all such a blur because it was kind of such a blurry time. But yeah, I was, I was barely 20. I was moving out of my house. You can correct me on some of these details because the timeline on my end was so hasty. But I mean, I was living at home when my father passed. So shortly thereafter, I had to move out. I couldn't afford to live in the house. And I had no real plan for my future at the time other than people told me it was the time to go to college. And that's, that's about when I met you. Moving yeah. out, yeah, thinking I'd be going to college. Yeah, because you had applied. Yeah. And how did you manage with all of that to apply and get accepted to a liberal arts powerhouse oh, yeah. on the East Coast? <laughs> yeah, being from Seattle and uh, there was really no talk of college in my house with my father. It was sort of taken for granted that I would go because I excelled academically. But there was no talk of preparation or which college or the college application process. I didn't even go to a high school where that was really a topic of conversation, had sort of a low graduation rate. That took precedence there. But then in the year of my father's illness, some extended family stepped in to, I guess, counsel or advise me and uh, took a look at my SAT scores and took a look, not so much at my experience in hindsight, but at their own and what had worked mm -hmm. for them and where they had gone. And uh, they compiled a list of schools that they thought would suit me. And there were schools I had heard of like Brown or Columbia. That was all exciting. It was terrifying. <laughs> but there were also smaller schools that I hadn't heard of. And most of them were, were in New England where there's a totally different college culture. And because I was my father's primary caregiver, I did not do any applications that year. I just had a list in a folder somewhere. Uh, he passed away on the 29th of November. And most of those applications were due like New Year's Eve. Um, so that's about 31 days. Uh, so I went down that list and looked at the application process for every school. And I found the ones that had either the shortest application or essay prompts that I immediately had something to say about. And I think I applied to six or seven colleges. A couple months later, found out that I had not taken the SAT subject test, which was a requirement for four out of those six or seven schools. Nothing I could do there. I didn't know that SAT subject tests existed. Yeah, I wound up getting accepted to Middlebury College, which was, it turns out, a big deal. You know, I got accepted and sort of had to Google where it was. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it felt like a fluke, but I, you know, I did get in and it was the only school that had accepted me. And like I mentioned before, I was in the process of moving out of my home. So it was a, it seemed like the next reasonable move, especially yeah. when you factor in, I didn't have an alternative plan. Yeah. The funny thing was the first call we got was from your lawyer and it was, you know, she was accepted to school. She, maybe you deferred, or maybe I assumed you deferred because you were 20 at the time. You had nobody to help you. And so I kept asking this question, has she applied for FAFSA? Has she completed her FAFSA? What is her FAFSA award? And no fault of your attorneys, because that is certainly not their concern. And that's not what they know anything about. They just wanted 
to do the best for you. So they just wanted to take the settlement and provide you with four equal payments to help you pay for college because that was your immediate need. And so once I found out where you were going, I immediately called the admissions office to ask about if we could apply for financial aid for you. And you might not even remember all of that, but they agreed because it was early enough. They hadn't run out of money yet that they would take your FAFSA form and consider you for a financial aid package. So that's when I called you to say, hey, get into the office. Let's fill out your FAFSA because we really couldn't do your settlement planning until we knew what your your immediate needs were. And we went through the form, which was incredibly tedious and difficult for someone that has no immediate parent to help them go through it. I mean, it's hard enough when kids have parents to complete that. And here you are out on your own. And so we, we completed that and found out you were going to get a really significant award, almost fully paid really from the college. So we could then feel comfortable structuring your settlement to your after college years, having that plan in place. And that experience was amazing for me because I realized, hey, attorneys aren't factoring in the impact of settlements on paying for college. And it's really not fair for you to have to use your money to pay for college when had your dad lived, you would have still qualified for this money. Right. And two things stand out for me there. First of all, it's very funny in hindsight to think about you and Bergman, the attorney, talking about this. Obviously, I had no idea what was going on in the background. And I think my recollection of it is so (laughs) foggy and sort of spotty because none of this was on my mind. You know, like that you two had a conversation about how's Rachel going to pay for college? I was not anywhere thinking about how am I going to pay for college? You know, there were so many more pressing issues or at least that seemed more pressing to me that had a greater sense of urgency. And then also, yeah, Middlebury turned out, again, did not know this when I applied to be one of those rare schools with, I think they call it need blind tuition. So they accept you before, I mean, all those other schools that I had applied to, maybe not all, but probably most, I would have had to apply for financial aid at the same time I applied to the school. So it was lucky too that Middlebury was was a fluke in that way. Yeah, they awarded me a ton of grants as a result yeah. of that work. Yeah. Which you're right, it was complicated filling those forms out. It was a pretty unique yeah. circumstance. Well, and the fact that, and you and I talked about this in our pre-meeting, having all of this happen to you at 19 and 20, where you don't have the safety net of high school guidance counselors to be guiding you through this, doesn't sound like maybe your school was big on that. But you also didn't have a lot of key influential people just that you could count on or or counsel you. Yeah, I think what I said to you, I don't think I had any awareness of this at the time. But in some ways, you can make a case that 19 was like the worst timing for my father to pass away. Not that we schedule those sorts of things. In that, had it been just one year sooner, if I were still in high school... Somebody else, whether it were a friend's family or a relative of mine, somebody else would have taken me in for a little while. Had it happened even a year later, and I had had kind of two adult years uh, with my father around as guidance, I think I would have had better bearings on the situation. But as it were, at 19, I had neither. I had nobody else who had taken me in to guide me. And at least the people around me, with the exception really of you guys there, sort of assumed well, she's an adult. She'll figure it out. And my recollection of you, and 
that's why I've always wondered, how did she turn out and how did that college go? Because you presented like such a mature 20 year old. And I think I was just reading you as based on everything you had gone through and the caregiving that you had done for your father. But at the same time, you know, now that I've been doing this a little bit longer, I realized you still had a lot that you had to process and go through. And I loved the comment you made about all the systems in our society that there are no written rules for, and you just have to learn them by going through them. Right. Yeah, there's a lot. (laughs) And at this time, this was a lot at once. I mean, I looked so forward to going to your office and handling these really difficult, frustrating (laughs) FAFSA forms, A, because no one else was offering that kind of hands-on support, and B, because it was so much better than like trying to find an attorney to rewrite my father's trust documents or to like battle with his, it was the only thing that felt like it was for me. Yeah. And the rest was really for me. We did our planning kind of based on that crystal ball that says a kid's going to go to school for four years and then you're going to get a job. And then, you know, it's all this almost fairy tale planning that we do. Maybe share with us what happened in your life after college and, and how it turned out with the plan that we put in place a little bit. Geez, well, stop me or guide me, depending on how I do here. But one thing, you know, you had reached out by email to me and you sent like a one line email. Just so people have some context, Julie was very kind to say like, hey, how are you? I'm sorry. It's been so long since I checked in, but I, you know, I wonder about you. And I, I wrote my life story back to her and that's what we wound here today. But I really wanted to share with her. It had been so long since I even looked back on what we had done there, which was all we could do at the time, which was sort of imagine what life might go on to look like. We had to look at the circumstances of being you know, it sounds so dramatic to say orphaned, but like really kind of orphaned at 19 and then it's you're 20 and okay, you got accepted to a great college. You know, by this point, everyone's made clear to me, Middlebury is a great place to be accepted to. And I just have to believe it. And so you'll graduate from this great college in four years. And then after that, you know, I remember you and, and Tony too saying like, well, then you'll get a job, you know, but it might not be your dream job right away. Like we really, yeah. It was the first time anyone had done it for me or that I had tried to do it for myself to paint a picture first of what my 20s might look like and then where that might lead me from there. Like maybe at this stage, you'll buy your first house, you know, landmarks that for a lot of people, maybe we weren't far off, you know, like gauging my peers who I see on social media now, like some of them hit those landmarks, but it it was not the case for me. And there's no way we could have really known that then. I just had to live it, which was I went later that year, 2012, I moved to Middlebury, Vermont, about as far as you can get from Seattle, Washington, all by myself. And I arrived at this college I knew very little about. I was only 20. Most of the freshmen were 18. And that is not a huge difference unless your last two years had looked like mine. (laughs) It was a bizarre landing spot. I also learned once I got there that though, I had applied on a whim. Many of my classmates had been planning to go to this college since they were 13, you know, and went to all the proper prep schools uh, to prepare them for that. Some of the counselors at Middlebury even tried to, this was so sweet of them, to group me with students. Like you said, that maybe I had deferred. That was becoming really popular around 2012. So there were maybe a couple dozen freshmen at Middlebury who had 
deferred. They had taken a gap year. They were really proud of that. But they had all like backpacked through Europe <laughs> or worked on like an organic farm. So every a lot of people come up to me and say, oh, I heard you took a gap year. What did you do? You know, And I was like, well, no. none of that. So anyway, long story short, it was really hard to fit in there. I had finally moved away from the lawyers and from the house where all of this had happened and all of the paperwork that I had been swimming under. That was my first time to like grieve the loss of my father and to really process all of that. And suddenly I was doing it in a new place surrounded by strangers, like really wealthy strangers in rural Vermont. It was rough to say the least, but I finished out my freshman year. I went back to the Seattle area for the summer. And then I drove back out to Middlebury for what would be my sophomore year. I was super depressed. So I finished out that semester and I went and saw, I don't know what she was, a counselor or advisor. And I said that I wanted to take a break, which is something Middlebury students do all the time. It's like take a six month leave of absence. <laughs> Usually it is to like do something fun. Um, but I just, I just, I don't know what I thought I was doing, but I did think I was taking a six month break. And I did not go back. I moved back to the Seattle area, you know, went back to waitress. I just kind of started living life as like a 21 year old person, really aimless. And that I was waitressing and then I was bartending and that went on for several years. And then I did eventually decide to finish that degree, but I did it at Seattle University. Again, applying kind of on a whim. I, um, the University of Washington had become by that point way too competitive. I didn't even want to bother. Uh, Seattle University, great school, Jesuit institution, 70% acceptance rate. So I just, I applied and uh, I, I, <laughs> really ambitious, but no, I did. That was 2016. So that year I applied to Seattle University and I also... Well, one thing we were up against, just for a little context here, um, I know you and I know, is that there was this settlement and there was also a trust that was separate from it. it had a corporate trustee with BCU and was a mess all its own, but it was separate. And I, uh, there was the house that I had grown up in inside that trust and the credit union wanted to sell the house. They don't like having houses and trusts. I wanted to keep the house because my father had told me to. I was able to negotiate in 2016 a way with them that I could buy the house out from the trust. They were all about it. So I bought a house and I went back to college in 2016. Wow. And during that time, because you and I talked about this, you had some of the mesothelioma checks showing up and it was just kind of things that, of course, we couldn't have planned for in doing your, your total no. plan. But tell us a little bit about, because we work with you know minors all the time that are going to come into money later. Tell us about your relationship with money during that time, because was it, were you able to disconnect it from the loss or how did you deal with Absolutely the money not. side of things? Absolutely not. And that is from day one. I don't know how most settlements come about. That's your wheelhouse, not mine. But mine was in an arbitration room with a judge and lawyers from a company. I don't even think I'm supposed to name like in the other room, going back and forth with the mounts. And you had mentioned like being impressed by me at 20. The judge was so impressed by me that she thought it was going to be a good technique to like bring the attorneys from the other side in. She said, we don't normally do this, but they're going to be scared of seeing you in a courtroom. Like all of this was a lot of pressure. But mesothelioma, so there was that settlement and that's what you and I wound up working with. 
what either wasn't explained to me or wasn't explained to me in a way that I understood was that with mesothelioma, there are also a series of bankruptcy trusts. I see the commercials for them now and I go, oh, I get that. Did not know at the time. You don't have to file a suit. You just have to file a claim or the attorneys file a claim with so many bankruptcy trusts and they issue a settlement based on a number of factors like the biggest one being, I think, lost earning potential. And my dad died at 56 as the foreman of like a commercial electric company. He was making good money. And these would show up too. So the, the, the structured settlement payments that you and I set up didn't even kick in until 2016. But starting probably two years after my dad died, like just occasionally and with no warning, different size checks would just show up in my mailbox. That's probably part of the way I was able to pay for the house in 2016. And none of this at any point was ever divorced from loss. From that initial point where they, you know, they said I made such a good impression that I should meet these other attorneys because you'll get more money out of them. That was just a few months after my dad died. And there's like two men in suits who just flew in from DC to like put a dollar amount on that. And then for the judge to insinuate, she was just doing her best. She was a very sweet woman to insinuate that I could probably get more because I was so charming. Like, so because I was charming, my dad's death was, would be worth more to them. All of it just felt really gross to put it simply. Mm -hmm. And it was impossible to prepare for, especially those bankruptcy checks that were so random. And I don't know, maybe you all have heard, hear this term all the time, but like, it felt really like blood money. So Mm -hmm. every check that came, it felt like blood money and it felt like free money. And throughout my twenties. I mean, every check in the mail was like a free pass to kind of do whatever I wanted. The the settlement checks, the bankruptcy settlement checks were really ranged in value from like 3,000 to 50,000 and just a couple times a year. And they never felt good. Yeah. That's for sure. And that's so hard to say out loud because I never really have. Just because who are you going to complain about that to? Do you know what I mean? Like who... Yeah, Nobody wants to hear that you get thousands of dollars in the mail when you're not expecting it and that it makes you sad. It's just not a really acceptable problem to have. Yeah, Every check was a reminder of loss. And then on top of that grief was just like mountains of shame. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I think that is the unique perspective that you have that we can't possibly put our head around. But I know a lot of the conversations that we have is trying to set a budget that we call the mad money when we're talking to folks and say, you know, just to get the bad taste out of your mouth, let's go blow some of the money to protect the rest of the money so that you can make good decisions with it. And, you know, and I think that the philosophy probably (laughs) evolved after our meeting with you. And that's why I'm like, oh, I just wish I could have held your hand through all of your twenties. Tell us how, because it sounds like a little bit, you had monopoly money. I mean, in terms of understanding the true value of it. How did being broke from time to time help you learn the value of a dollar? Well, I don't even know if it did. I mean, <laughs> I hope it did. I think, I mean, it's it's hard talking about this knowing that we both know the fuller picture, which is like my, I just turned 30 this year. So I'm really, it's prompted a good amount of reflection on my 20s, which I essentially say I burned. And we can close by saying how I'm in a better place now, but buying that house was a great idea. Okay. So that took all of this liquid money that I would have burned, trust me, elsewhere and parked it in something that I wanted to have that was a smart investment to have. It was also someplace I could live. 
because in the years previous, I had rented rooms mostly and then one apartment. And bartending is good money. Getting random checks in the mail is good money. But I had no idea what money meant because it, it was a lot, a lot like monopoly money. So there were times that I was broke. So buying the house was as much a good investment as it was like, well, at least I'm not paying rent. And if I could keep my expenses really low, I couldn't screw it up quite as much. Mm-hmm. If your expenses are low, your need to budget doesn't factor in. Yeah. Because it felt like any time I came close to having to really learn the value of a dollar the hard way, a check would arrive in the mail. And again, like, oh, what? crummy luck, you know, to like suddenly have $10,000 you weren't accounted, that wasn't accounted for. And um, by my mid 20, like 2016, I'm 24 when I buy that house, then I have a place to live. I get a job at a bar near that house. I go back to school, which, you know, is not for nothing, but it wasn't, at that point, it felt like the right thing to do. It wasn't necessarily something I was doing for myself or with a clear purpose. And I don't know, I don't want to detract from like the topic we're on here, but it's so important to my life story that I develop like a horrendous drinking problem. It just seems like if I don't mention that, nothing else really makes sense. But when you factor that in, it really does, which is that I'm not taking care of myself at all. Physically, emotionally, my life's getting smaller and smaller. I'm living like in a, in the suburb where I grew up, just south of Seattle. And I have zero reason to change at all. So 2016, I'm 24. That's when I buy the house. I go back to school. Once I'm in school at 25 was when we set up the first payments to kick in and with the best of intentions, right? Like, okay, so you go to this great college, you'll be there for four years. So you'll graduate at 24, which means at 25, you'll be in your first job out of college. And, you know, it it probably won't meet all your needs. You'll want a little extra money. This was the picture we painted. It made perfect sense. Not the case at all. I have plenty of money. I just bought a house and I'm an undergraduate again. Yeah. And now, you know, that's when the monthly payments kicked in. So I'll let you resume questioning because I got off the path there. (laughs) Well, I think that gets to when do you think, obviously the drinking problem, probably there's nothing I could have done to prevent that, right? So I wish I could, I wish I could, but you lived through it, right? And you you got yeah. the help that you needed. And right. I guess what I would say is, when do you think you started to get financial maturity? I mean, I kind of feel like you've gotten there, but now, yeah. Gosh, I mean, it's even, it's even hard to say that I have it now. I mean, buying the house, in some ways, I've still not been forced to have financial maturity in the traditional sense. Okay, like my financial circumstances are so, as far as I know, pretty darn unique. So it's not to say that I don't have financial maturity, but I don't think it would be defined for the common person this way. I mean, purchasing the house in 2016 was a super sound decision, but made for not the soundest reasons. You know, like I really thought, well, no matter how far I ruin my life, I'll have a roof over my head. Okay. But it panned out. But living in such a way that I could keep my expenses low, like I've incurred, I just haven't incurred debt, which has been the benefit of this, which also means I have like a financial planner now. And uh, I recently, my car was totaled. I had to buy a new car and I didn't know what he was going to say, but I said, I think I'm going to buy it outright. I don't want to take a loan. He goes, that's a great idea. And I said, is it? Because I don't have any credit. (laughs) And he was like, well, you also never take out loans. So it's not the normal sense. I just think 
to answer your question, I don't know that I have a traditional sense of financial maturity. I don't know that people can develop that independently. Okay. You know yeah. I mean, you've kind of been, a, yeah. Yeah. You, you've been on an island and I think a lot of people have a lot of family support to help. Okay. Was that the best decision with your money? You know, and they, they help along the way. And I Do think they? that you, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think some of us try and, and one of the, one of the thoughts that I had after I got your letter, it's like, you know, what if we would have had just this huge trust in place that would have just counseled you along the way? And and this is certainly not a negative to trust, but your experience with the trust was, it wasn't the best because there was a trust no. set up through the will. And so you didn't have a trustee that was there to kind of guide you and provide things for you, but it wasn't a traditional trust in that it didn't have a lot of liquid resources, correct? No, it had a Roth IRA. No, okay. nothing, not really. So it didn't have a lot of assets that it could help kind of guide you with like a typical trustee would, but maybe talk a little bit about your experience with the trust. Cause I found it interesting how it made you feel when you had to ask for money. Oh yeah. So Remember that I think of all this money as like a symbol of grief or a reminder of grief and loss coupled with the shame. And then there's this trust that was managed uh, by a corporate trustee. That was a whole to do in the first place. And I rarely needed to ask for anything from it because the main asset was a Roth IRA. There's required minimum distributions. So on top of the structured settlements payments we established, the bankruptcy settlements that are showing up just when they do yeah. and the required minimum distribution, I rarely needed to ask for anything from the trust. There were a couple of occasions where I did and I did so super reluctantly because nothing about that felt like mine. Anything I was going to ask for, I had to ask, I don't even know what she called herself. She worked for them and she was, she was my point of contact. And then I would explain to her how much I wanted, why I needed it. And then she would have to take that to the board, uh, which were people I did not know and who definitely did not sit down with me and my father while we established all of this. Yeah, who didn't know me personally at all. And then the board would approve or deny that request. So it all felt really like it was happening in some mysterious tower somewhere. And it just happened to be like <laughs> yes. you know, in the Tukwila building on the Green River. And so, yeah, it never... It didn't feel like mine. None of this ever felt like mine, but especially having to like justify any expense I might have yeah. just to ask for like money that was allotted for me in the first place. Right. No, I totally, yeah, felt, I, I totally get that. It felt really infantilizing to the point where that trust only dissolved this year. So now I'm 30 years old and I'm meeting with a financial planner that I hired myself and after a good mm -hmm. referral. I don't even know how to talk to this guy. Like, I feel like such a child talking about my own money. And I have to remind myself, like, to him, you're just a client who came, like, you're an adult person who came here with this sum of money and he manages it. But it, it, I have to really actively remind myself of that before I start telling him, like, well, what if I, you know, <laughs> if I try to make up reasons why I might want access to my own money. If you could give advice to someone in your shoes, like someone that is, you know, I, I've, I've got a case right now, they're 18, 21, 10, and 11, and they've lost their dad. What advice do you have for those of us working with folks facing that situation 
in our planning. And what advice would you give those girls that have lost their dad? The most important and most difficult thing for me, and the money played a part here, was like finding the community that I needed and like finding the support that I needed. I can't stress enough how isolating it was to feel like I had a one up on everyone else I knew and that watching people struggle, like I, you know, like I did intermittently, but struggle to pay their bills or this, you know, picking up overtime when I'm turning down overtime because I have enough, you know, I, to not relate to my peers. I mean, to put it simply, having too much money, like I said before, is not a problem you can take to other people. And so it was, (laughs) it reminded me of grief. I had my own shame about it. And then it was my biggest secret. Like it was probably, whether we like to admit it or not, like money kind of defines our lives. You know, we have other things too, family work, you know, passion, but your level of comfort and where you live and like where your next meal comes from makes a big, it is obviously, obviously a defining factor. And all of my money was a secret. And that was really hard. So finding having this big secret and then finding a community where I felt safe and supported was the most essential. And I don't know where everyone's going to find that, but it is loneliness is so dangerous and being isolated is so dangerous for anyone. And money can really divide you from other people. Yeah. I think it did for me. It's definitely a unique perspective. Yeah. Especially when you're that young. I mean, my father and I had those like 10 or 11 months to talk about I mean, I even think about his point of view where he worked his whole life, set aside this huge retirement that he thought was for him. You know, he always provided for me and would have done anything for me. Boy, oh boy, like we couldn't have planned for this, you know? So even in the time that he was sick, there was no way to to make any sort of plan and to then have money that in a lot of ways was his, that certainly never felt like mine and not know what his intentions were, but to really be too young into an experience to set my own intentions was a really difficult position to be in. Well, and I think we talked about too, this plan we put in place, and it just reminds me to really check in with where the person is in their grief journey of whatever they've gone through. But you were kind of just, okay, I'm supposed to do this. And you've got four. I mean, you really didn't have a chance to grieve before you had to be on a plane to Vermont. And then, you, you know, I think that it's funny. I I think that could have been done better for you. And that could have helped had you processed grief earlier versus so late in your 20s. Yeah. I mean, one thing I said to you on the phone, I mean, there's some ways where I wonder, I mean, grief's an ongoing process. It's not like unique to me, but the worst thing that ever happened to me turned out to be hugely profitable. And that makes it really hard to grieve ongoing. You know, like I'm sitting in a house right. now that I that I also bought, like with that, that I couldn't yeah. have bought. That's tricky. I, so the grief thing is the money interrupts it. And depending on how long it lasts, I think it continues to interrupt it. It will take like a real licensed therapist to really work through this one. But I wouldn't be surprised, if, especially <laughs> when I was younger, I couldn't have spent the money fast enough. Like it, it, it had such a negative association for me that it didn't even feel right to do the responsible thing with it. Like to get rid of it was what felt more appropriate. Yeah. I kind of prepped you for this as well, but what advice would your 30 year old self 
say to your 20 year old self? I mean, if you were to write a letter to yourself or give yourself a heads up, I don't know how, how deep you want to go. It's completely up to you, but I'm sure we'd love to hear it. I don't know. I mean, gosh, uh, did you prep me for this? What did I say then? Um, <laughs> I don't know, something along the lines of like, that it's okay not to know everything then. You know, I think I put a lot of pressure on myself to know how things were going to go, even though I had all this evidence that you can't predict the future, unexpected things happen all the time. I felt like I had a huge responsibility to be doing something specific when in reality, like 19, 20, 21, that's, that's really young and you're not supposed to have it all figured out. And like, really that applies at any age, right? It's not like, well, now I'm 30 and I have it all figured out, but at least I don't expect myself to. Whereas at 20, that was not the case. It felt like a tremendous burden that if I didn't have it figured out, then I never would. And like, clearly that's not the case. What are your goals now that you've gotten through the worst of it? I would say that the aimless part. You know, I I wound up leaving the Seattle area and I I felt pretty root bound where I was. Cleaned up my act almost two years ago and uh, just got, got out of that area this year and moved to New England. Not to go to college this time. Uh, Maybe. Um, I'm living, I'm working, I'm close to family uh, who live out here for the first time in my life, really close to people who are a good support system. And I might go back to school again for social work. We'll see. I'm actually applying to a school that, um, not because it's easy, but because I want to (laughs) go. So we'll see what they say. Yeah, to make all this work for me rather rather than against me. Oh, Rachel, that's wonderful to hear. Yeah, no, thank you so much for being available to share your experience with it. I think everybody gained a lot. Hey, thank you for talking with me, Julie. Hey, Julie, this is Tacker. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for describing the range of emotions that you went through, both at the time that you were going through the settlement process and in the subsequent years. You know, Julie and I and many of the settlement consultants have to work with claimants who are going through those initial stages of loss, of injury, uh, and then, you know, two, maybe three years of litigation. But thank you for your honesty and your openness in, in describing those. Julie, I've got a quick question to you, and, and thank you so much for all you do, not only for this session, but the entire education program and for chairing the education committee. But Julie, over the years, we've all not become used to, but perhaps become trained to work with claimants going through that range of emotions. How do we keep from becoming desensitized? You know, because we deal with this day in, day out, as do most claimants' attorneys, even the defense attorneys, What are your secrets? Well, it's funny because uh, Tony Robinson will tell you I'm not an emotional person. And so it's kind of, I'm a very practical person. But what I try to do when I'm talking to folks and asking them questions is really mirror where they're at. So if they're onto the practical nature of the settlement, I probably stay pretty practical. But I think it's really important that we talk about preparing them for the range of emotions that they might feel to the settlement. I think we could do a better job of that. And that's, I mean, Rachel, you have no idea how many people you've impacted and the takeaway will be to really get in touch with, it's not all pretty smelling flowers because this check's going to show up in the future and maybe prepare people and get a sense of it. And as I mentioned before, we try to create a mad money budget so people can get most of that anger out 
so that the rest of the money can be dealt with in a more positive way and not have the negative, but it's easy to say, hard to do. Thanks, Julie. Rachel, again, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Your story has had a great impact on us all, I'm sure. Julie, again, thanks so much for all you do. You bet, Tucker. Oh, thanks. You all take care.